Hello, this is Dr. David Friedman, host of To Your Good Health Radio. The most common complaints I hear from my patients are a lack of energy and brain fog. So many people, they turn to these quick fixes like caffeine, sugar, stimulants, and energy drinks. But unfortunately, these things can wreak havoc on our hormones, and they lead to an array of unhealthy conditions. Joining us today is returning guest and my friend, R.E. Witten. His new book, Eat for Energy, shares the secrets to restoring energy, cognitive function, and alertness. If you're sick and tired of feeling sick and tired, don't go anywhere. Ari Witten is in the house, and it all starts now. It's To Your Good Health Radio with number one best-selling author and renowned wellness expert, Dr. David Friedman, changing lives just for the health of it. Our next guest is a number one best-selling author of several cutting-edge books, including the groundbreaking Ultimate Guide to Red Light Therapy. He has a Bachelor's of Science degree from San Diego State University in Kinesiology with a specialization in fitness, nutrition, and health. He also holds two advanced certifications from National Academy of Sports Medicine and a PhD in clinical psychology. He's the host of the popular Energy Blueprint podcast, which brings together the world's leading experts on the subject of fatigue and energy enhancement. His new book, Eat for Energy, shares how we can beat fatigue and supercharge our mitochondria. Welcome to the show, my energizing brother from another mother, Ari Witten. Thank you so much for having me, my friend. It is always a great pleasure and honor to talk to you. Yeah, it's uh, great having you back. You know, I've covered a lot of health conditions on the show that offer some great information for some, but may not apply to everyone. I've done shows on diabetes and arthritis, yada, yada. But you know, when it comes to people needing more energy, stamina, and focus, that pretty much includes most of us, right? That's everybody listening. Share with us first, what inspired you to write a book on Eat for Energy? Well, uh, you know, health science more broadly has been my passion since I was a little kid, since I was 12 or 13 years old. I'm 38 now, about to turn 39. And, um, you know, I, I really haven't stopped studying obsessively uh, and passionately this topic of health science. The first decade or so was, was very focused on, you know, sort of bodybuilding, body composition, fat loss, muscle gain, athletic performance. I was an athlete. I was an aspiring bodybuilder. And that was my world for many years. And then in my mid-20s, I got very ill with Epstein-Barr virus. I got mononucleosis, called in, in some other countries, also called um, glandular fever or the kissing disease. I wish I got it from kissing. I think I got it from sharing a water bottle with a bunch of other dudes during a soccer game. Uh, it would have been much better if I, if I had a better story to tell as far as the, <laughs> the source of that illness. But <laughs> I ended up getting very sick. I lost about 35 or 40 pounds in the span of a month because I, my throat was so swollen and inflamed, I couldn't eat anything except broth. And then following that was the worst part. I was left with severe chronic fatigue for about a year after that. And I pursued lots of things within conventional medicine, within alternative and functional medicine, and ultimately discovered... I'm, I'm condensing many years of my life here into a couple sentences, but ultimately discovered that almost no one really understood the science of what regulates energy in the human body. So I sort of, that, that, that was the catalyst for me to really shift all my focus away from the world of body composition and athletic performance 
and towards the science of energy. And that's what I've devoted my life to for the last decade. Yeah, so you really turned your mess into your message. And I love when I interview people and they've got that story where, hey, there's a problem, there's no solution, I'm going to find it, and then I'm going to share and inspire others. So, you know, you really, you, you got back your inner Energizer Bunny. Is there anything that you can relate where um, one specific, was it your diet, was it nutrition, was it attitude? What what did you really harness that, that, that was probably a few things, but if you can pick the top one. As far as what benefited me the most. Yes. I wish I had some wonderful story of sort of personal triumph as a result of discovering, you know, one weird trick, so to speak, right. to use a common online marketing language. <laughs> uh, but it wasn't really like that for me. It, it was, I spent years uncovering one layer of this energy story after another because no one had put the pieces together before me, you know? So I started with, Hey, you know, I know that when we sleep poorly, the next day we feel fatigued. Why, why is that? How does this story of sleep and circadian rhythm, our body's biological rhythms, how does that tie into energy? So I started digging into that. I spent months, uh, you know, probably a year and a half just on that topic alone, uncovering all these layers of hormonal and neurotransmitter and other biochemical mediated mechanisms of how circadian rhythm and sleep tie into this energy production story. Um, I spent a ton of time on nutrition. What are all these different mechanisms of how nutrition tie into the energy production story? What about what's going on in the brain and neurotransmitters? What about, you know, different biochemical pathways, AMPK and mTOR and PGC1 alpha and, you know, all these different pathways of how do hormones, thyroid hormone and testosterone and cortisol and melatonin and you know, how, how do all these things tie into this energy story? And, you know, I spent years, literally years and years and years just trying to uncover all these different mechanisms, ultimately sort of left at the end of it with, uh, you know, a list of a hundred plus different mechanisms, physiological mechanisms of what is controlling energy production in our body. It was really the work of Dr. Robert Navio, who runs a lab for mitochondrial medicine at the University of California, San Diego, who helped me sort of create an overarching paradigm uh, and a synthesis of all of these dozens and dozens of biochemical mechanisms into some kind of coherent framework to understand what is truly regulating human energy levels, what is actually deciding whether our body has youthful levels of energy or whether uh, we are chronically fatigued. And uh, specifically, it was his paper that came out in 2014 called The Cell Danger Response that was really instrumental, that kind of blew my mind and, and sent shockwaves through the whole health and medical communities. Um, I think it's one of the most important papers in the last century. I've also had the privilege of, of getting to know Dr. Navio in person and sort of having some, some personal time with him, personal mentoring time. It's just an absolute brilliant, amazing guy. One of the, the really big insights, the, the central insight of his work is that mitochondria, which we're taught about in you know high school and college and medical school biology classes as sort of these mindless energy generators. They're, they're talked about as the, the powerhouse of the cell, which is true, but they're framed as these sort of mindless energy generators whose job is basically just to take in carbs and fat and pump out energy. And in fact, and, and this was Dr. Robert Navio's big insight as a result of synthesizing lots of research, it turns out that mitochondria have a second role beyond energy production. They are, they are also 
environmental sensors and cellular defenders. And they have these two roles in energy generation and cellular defense. And these two roles are mutually exclusive. So to the extent they're doing one, they're turning off the other. Basically, we can conceptualize mitochondria as the canaries in the coal mine of our body. They are the most sensitive, the most upstream thing that is basically, they're these environmental sensors that are constantly taking samples of the environment going, are we under attack? Are we under attack? Is it safe to produce energy? And to the extent that they're picking up on danger signals, and they can pick up on virtually every type of threat or stress or danger signal you can think up from poor nutrition to psychological stress to sleep deprivation to physical overtraining to respiratory infections to environmental toxicants and anything else you can think of. They can pick up those threats and to the extent they are picking up on threats, they are turning down the dial on energy production and shifting resources towards cellular defense. And that is fundamentally the most important thing to understand about what is controlling energy production, your energy levels in the human body. It is to the, what, to what extent are your mitochondria are in energy mode or in defense mode? Wow. And so you mentioned, you know, prior that, you know, you, you looked at hundreds of different systems and environmental causes and food and all that, that for energy. Really, you did harness it down to the mitochondria. So that would be the one key focus. And that's on the cover of your book. But I've read research that shows we lose some of our mitochondria function as we age. Is it possible for the body to kind of produce new youthful mitochondria or is maintaining the health of our old powerhouses all we can hope for? Oh, I love you, Dr. Friedman. This is my favorite topic. Okay, so this is such a great and important question, and it, it gets at something that is unfortunately not widely known and not focused on by mo most of the natural health and functional medicine community, but is absolutely vitally important. There are many, many uh, lines of research that have shown that on average, mitochondrial capacity, you can think of this as the, the total number of mitochondria you have per cell. So on average, we have somewhere between 500 to 2,000 mitochondria per cell. Those mitochondria are, just to for context, mitochondria are responsible for producing virtually all of the energy for virtually all of the trillions of cells in your body. Okay, maybe the one exception of red blood cells, but pretty much all the other types right. of cells in your body from your brain neurons to your heart cells, to your intestine, to your liver, to your muscles, pretty much everything is relying on mitochondria for virtually all of its energy. Okay. Now, on average, people's mitochondrial capacity declines by about 10% with each decade of life. Now, that maybe that doesn't sound like that much, but here's another way of conceptualizing that. We have research to show that the typical 70-year-old has lost 75% of their mitochondrial capacity. They've lost 50% wow. of the number of mitochondria that they had when they were a young adult, so let's say a 20-year-old adult, and the mitochondria that they do have left, which are cut in half, their energy-producing capacity is cut in half. Those mitochondria are damaged, they're dysfunctional, they don't produce energy as well. They're weak, they're atrophied, and so on. Now, this sounds like really bad news. You know, people might conclude, well, oh man, that really sucks uh, that, you know, we lose so much of our mitochondria as we get older. We're losing 
just and just to to put this in in perspective, we're losing seventy five percent of our cellular engine. Okay, this is like going from a Ferrari engine as a young adult to a moped engine when you're seven. <laughs> it's a big big difference. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and you know, and this this is a massive massively important thing that not not just for energy production though of course if you decrease your cellular engines by 75% you're going to have a lot less energy but also we we now have a, a huge body of evidence thousands of studies linking my, mitochondrial atrophy loss of mitochondria and mitochondrial dysfunction to dozens of different diseases including basically all the major killers particularly cancer and neurological disease uh, things like that and the rate of aging itself and our lifespan, our longevity is also directly tied into mitochondrial capacity. So this is not purely just a matter of sort of the subjective state of how much energy and vitality you feel. This directly relates to disease prevention and longevity as well. And I should also mention resistance to stress and resilience as well. Now, I, I, and we can dig into that to the extent that you want, and I can explain how that, how some of those things work. But, um, the, the, the gist of this is that this is actually not, this is the good news, this is actually not just a natural product of the aging process. It is actually the result of modern lifestyle that drive the loss of mitochondria, specifically the lack of what's called hormetic stress built into our life. And this includes things like exercise, all the different subtypes of exercise, things like breath holding practices, uh, fasting practices, thermal stress, so both heat and cold, and uh, and several other types of hormetic stressors, including phytochemicals, which is I know an area that you talk a lot about, Dr. Friedman. Right. So you know, these are all these all act on hormetic pathways, and they basically challenge our mitochondria in much the same way that if you lift a heavy weight, you're challenging a muscle and therefore stimulating it to adapt to those conditions by growing bigger and stronger. Uh, these hormetic stressors do the exact same thing at the cellular level, at the mitochondrial level. They are challenging our mitochondria, and our mitochondria are forced to adapt to those conditions by growing bigger and stronger and by stimulating a process called mitochondrial biogenesis, the creation of new mitochondria, more mitochondria. So the good news is you can regrow the mitochondria that you had when you were a young adult. Wow. That's great. I know your book's called Eat for Energy and so much conflicting info. You and me share the same uh, frustration. You got the, the paleo, the plant-based, Mediterranean, pescatarian, fruitarian, list goes on and on. When it comes to having more energy, if we just focus on energy, have you found any particular diet that leads the pack? Are vegans, paleo, or keto diet followers more energetic or productive or really kind of mixed? I don't think that you can draw any strong conclusions around that. There, there are principles that extend across those different dietary patterns. And I'm very focused on that, um, right. not on these sort of diet wars of these different, you know, diet zealots and, and religious dogmatic dietary cults, right. of, you know, who, who have these, these or that sort of dogmas and, you know, they're constantly battling with the other dietary cults. I'm really not into that stuff. Um, I think it's very silly. And I think the research doesn't support the conclusion that one of those diets is superior to the other. And, and, and we could spend a lot of time talking about this. Uh, yesterday, I just did a live webinar talking about many different dietary comparisons, all, a lot of research comparing different diets 
of all sorts of different macronutrients in terms of fat loss outcomes, for example. So right. we can compare, you know, very low carb to high carb, low fat diets. Um, we can compare the zone to Atkins to Ornish to, you know, all these different named popular diet plans. We, we can do that comparison and look at fat loss outcomes. All that research exists. You know, the, the, the very brief summary of a large body of that kind of research is what it really shows is that our focus on all those sorts of macronutrient ratios and this diet versus that diet and this macronutrient ratio of carbs to fats versus that, that other one in the context of fat loss is certainly misguided because differences in weight loss outcomes are very small between all these different diets. So that's not where the, the, the real meat of the results comes from. And then that's one context, of course, fat loss. You know, there's other contexts we can look at different disease outcomes, you know, heart disease risk. We can look at other markers of metabolic health, the, the amount of oxidative stress, you know, or, or inflammatory markers or insulin sensitivity, um, how much fat is lost. There's lots of different ways of sort of analyzing the efficacy of different diets. But I would say just a couple more thoughts I have here. One is there is a continual thing in the that that emerges in our culture, which is everybody's looking for the new magic diet. And there are charlatans that exist that are continually feeding into that craving of the general population by coming out with some new book, claiming some wacky thing like, you know, everybody's got it wrong. Really, it's not low fat. And it's not low carb and it's not keto and it's not paleo and it's not the Mediterranean diet. Really, the one true best human diet is this. And, you know, really plants are trying to kill you and the lectins are out <laughs> to get you or, you know, these these defense right. chemicals in plants are, are, are trying to kill you. And really, the humans are meant to eat nothing but meat. All of this stuff is absolute nonsense and quackery and pseudoscience and totally at odds with the uh, scientific literature. It's, it's just charlatans trying to make money off people's gullibility. And all of that stuff is, is very problematic. And then I will say, just on a personal note, if, if somebody's interested in like what my personal bias is towards, based on lots of experimentation with every extreme and wacky right. diet you can think of for 20 plus years, I favor something between like, I think my, my diet could probably be best described as some kind of hybrid between maybe a paleo and a Mediterranean diet. I do not have lots of dogmas. I do not endorse one particular dietary camp. Um, and I'm not extreme about demonizing any particular food group. Right. What about, uh, you know, when it comes to depleting energy, is there a food or ingredient that you actually consider public enemy number one? We should get it out of our bodies, get it out of our kitchens? Not in terms of any whole food, no. But we can say, pro if, if we're going to sort of say the most foundational principle for eating well, it's got to be eat foods that run, fly, swim, or grow out of the ground. Single ingredient foods, unprocessed whole foods. That is, that is rule number yeah. one for eating well. Now, you know, within that rule, there's lots of room for eating lower fat or higher fat or lower carb or higher carb or higher protein or a little lower protein. But that's, that's rule number one. I would say rule number two is emphasize in terms of the volume of food on your plate, emphasize plant foods, unprocessed plant foods. So that can include things like leafy greens, berries, sweet potatoes, carrots, you know, root vegetables, 
It can include healthy, unprocessed grains like, like quinoa or wild rice, things like that. But that, those are sort of the two most basic foundational rules of eating well. And then within that, there's quite a lot of flexibility for, for macronutrient ratio differences and so on. Yeah, I love that rule number one. I mean, that says it all. And then work your way down from there. In other words, start there. That's the rule number one. And then, but always look to rule number one, no matter where you go, or right? So if, if you want to do the low carb, if you want to do more animal, if you want to do vegan, look at rule number one. That's what exactly. it's all about. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Again, I've had a lot of health experts on the show. They talk about leaky gut syndrome, but you share something in Eat for Energy that I haven't read in any other health book, leaky blood-brain barrier. And you mentioned how humans mm-hmm. have 370 miles of blood vessels that deliver nutrients and remove waste from the brain. But you share in your book, if this gatekeeper malfunctions, it can leak and cause cognitive decline. What is leaky blood-brain barrier? Sounds scary. it is it is scary (laughs) and it's it's really the same basic ideas as a leaky gut you know when you have a leaky gut basically what's going on is we we have this barrier between our intestinal wall and our bloodstream and if it's leaky then there's things that are passing through there essentially through pores or holes between the gut and the blood and, and therefore, they're not passing through the cells and they're not passing through specific transporters, but they're actually just leaking directly into the blood. And, and when this happens, we get um, undigested food particles. Uh, we get what's something called LPS, lipopolysaccharide or bacterial endotoxin, which is a toxin that's produced by certain uh, species, mostly gram-negative species of bacteria in the gut. And that endotoxin, this bacterial toxin, leaking into the bloodstream is directly cytotoxic. It's toxic to our cells. It's toxic to the neurons in our brain. It's toxic to the mitochondria throughout the cells of our body. Okay. So when, when membranes or um, barriers that are designed to sort of modulate what things pass through it and what things don't pass through it, when those things are not, when, when they've lost their integrity and they become leaky, we get physiological pathology. We get disease processes starting to emerge. So just as we have that kind of barrier in the gut, we also have one at the brain. And it's designed to let certain things pass through it. For example, glucose, for example, ketones, for example, amino acids that are involved in neurotransmitter synthesis. And it's designed to also block out and prevent lots of things from passing through. So it's designed to prevent ideally toxins and viruses and bacteria and, and all kinds of other things that are floating around in the bloodstream, including, you know, many of our own bodies, like certain many immune cells. It's designed to prevent those from passing into the brain. When that, the integrity of that barrier gets damaged or disrupted and, and many of the same things that tend to cause gut barrier disruption also will cause it at the level of the brain barrier, and the two are related. So to the extent that you have leaky gut, it will tend to induce leaky brain. And when that happens, now you've got all kinds of things that are floating around in your bloodstream that shouldn't be getting into your brain that are now getting into your brain, initiating disease processes, increasing oxidative stress and neuroinflammation, and driving neurodegenerative diseases or cognitive decline or other problems at the level of the brain. 
Yeah, and a lot of that can be from environmental toxins. I know, you know, a lot of people complain of brain fog. And when I drank contaminated water a few years back, I ended up with severe colitis. And one of the worst symptoms was a loss of memory and constant brain fog. And Ari, I couldn't even remember the name of my office manager of 17 years. I said, uh, go, go talk to the brunette at the front. I did. I couldn't remember her name. So for people suffering wow. from brain, brain fog or cognit- cognitive decline, uh, how can an unhealthy gut really be the cause? And, and it's something that's new in science. We used to think it's the brain, but it's the gut. And, and I'm telling you, I, it was my gut that made me lose my memory. What could we do? You know, it's, it's really interesting. As, as we learn more about physiology, we discover more and more that everything's connected in the body. And, you know, you can now find lots of scientific literature on the gut in relationship to almost every other system of the body. So you can Go on PubMed or Google Scholar and you can look up, you know, gut skin axis, gut lung axis, gut heart axis, gut liver axis, yeah. um, gut mitochondria axis. That's something I talk a lot about in the book is the relationship between the gut and the mitochondria and gut brain axis. And we know that a whole bunch of stuff that's going on in the gut is directly affecting the brain. Many neurotransmitters are synthesized in the gut. When we have dysbiosis in the gut, we get all kinds of problems. So there's a few different layers we can sort of unpack here. One is a healthy gut needs to have a high integrity barrier so you don't have leaky gut. That's number one. You don't want undigested food particles leaking into your bloodstream, causing chronic immune activation and oxidative stress. You don't want bacterial endotoxin leaking into your blood because if it's leaking into your blood, it's it's neurotoxic, okay? That, that is directly damaging the function of neurons in your brain. So that's one layer of, of how the, the gut's affecting the brain. Another layer is we need a high-integrity gut for neurotransmitter production. And we even know, for example, that the amount of, let's say, the neurotransmitter GABA that is produced in the gut has a direct impact on the brain. Now, there's some sort of controversy around the exact mechanism of how this takes place. Some people are positing that the GABA travels from the gut into the brain. Other people are saying, oh, well, the GABA in the gut affects the parasympathetic nervous system via the vagus nerve, and that calms activity in the brain through, as a result of the effect it has on, these, on, the, on the vagus nerve and the, and the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, but either way, there's, there's multiple mechanisms of what's going on there. In addition, we know that the gut is involved in producing short-chain fatty acids, things like uh, butyrate and propionate. And those short-chain fatty acids are extremely important for mitochondrial function and brain function in particular. They're highly anti-inflammatory in the brain, and they uh, support mitochondrial energy production in profound ways. So, um, you know, to, this is to the extent that, that my friend, uh, Dr. Tatis Karazian, who's a Harvard Medical School researcher and who's one of the most widely respected brain experts in the world, he says that butyrate is his number one most important brain supplement. Well, butyrate is a short-chain fatty acid that is supposed to be produced in ample amounts in our gut, and it, but it's only produced in ample amounts if we have the right gut microbiome, a healthy gut barrier. And we are providing the substrates in our diet for those gut bugs to be producing ample amounts of butyrate. 
So vitally important for brain function. So there's a few different ways that, that gut health ties into brain health. Yeah, I hadn't heard that one. That was very interesting. That's, uh, wow. I mean, so, so we, we try to supplement what our body could be making if we had a healthy gut, and therefore we're band-aiding a gut that's not healthy. Right. And that's really the, exactly. the goal is to yeah. get a healthy gut. You don't have to band-aid it with, with all these energy drinks and coffee. And so, speaking, of, speaking of coffee, what, you know, that's a big go-to. And uh, you've got a very interesting perspective when it comes to daily caffeine consumption. And for those that may have missed our first interview, share with us, should we add some grind to get through our daily grind? <laughs> okay. So, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if the fatigue epidemic was solved as easily as just telling people to consume more caffeine. You know, that would be, that would be a really nice, easy fix for everybody. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, I think people have mostly discovered on their own that it's taking caffeine and stimulants is not a fix. Now, unfortunately, there, there's something insidious going on here that prevents people from seeing this very clearly. And a lot of people get in sort of a vicious cycle. So let me uh, explain the mechanism of how caffeine works, and then I'll sort of tie some research into it. Sure. Um, so uh, we, we have a certain balance of neurotransmitters in our brain. Some are stimulatory and some are inhibitory, meaning some are sort of more energizing, some are more relaxing. And, and depending on, you know, the time of day, the, the brain's trying to maintain a certain balance of that. So the, the balance is different right now during waking consciousness compared to in the middle of the night when we need to be asleep, when we're getting ready for bed and sleeping, it's increasing some of those relaxing, low energy neurotransmitters and, and decreasing the ones that are stimulating and higher energy. So the point is the brain's always trying to maintain a balance, the appropriate balance of these stimulatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters. Now, one of the, the key inhibitory neurotransmitters that lowers our energy levels, makes us sleepy and tired, is called adenosine. Adenosine works, you can, you basically think of it like this. So if we have a bunch of adenosine floating around in the brain, that adenosine then hits adenosine receptors. It locks into those receptors and then triggers a biochemical cascade that makes us lower energy, sleepy and tired. Caffeine works on those adenosine receptors. So it basically does the same thing that adenosine does. The caffeine molecules float around in the brain, and then they go into those adenosine receptors. The difference is once they hit those receptors, they don't trigger the cascade that adenosine triggers that makes us lower energy. All they do is plug up the receptor so that adenosine can't get in. So by blocking a, uh, the, the receptors for this neurotransmitter that would otherwise be lowering your energy, and making you sleepy and tired, it creates a stimulating, energizing effect. Okay, that's, that's how caffeine works. Now, all of that sounds wonderful, you know, to, to be honest. And, right. um, and, and it is wonderful in the short term. It, and we have a, a very robust body of scientific evidence showing that by taking what, what's called caffeine-naive people, meaning people who don't normally consume caffeine, and then you give them caffeine, you can show that that caffeine... Um, increases their physical energy levels, increases their motivation and drive, increases cognitive performance, increases physical performance in, in athletics, um, increases reaction time, and, and lots of other things of that nature. Basically improves mental and physical performance and energy levels. So well, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Everything is great. 
It is when you look at it in the short term. The problem is this. As, as I said at the beginning of this, the brain is trying to maintain an appropriate balance of these stimulatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters. It doesn't like to be uh, to have excessive amounts of stimulation or inhibition. It's trying to maintain the proper balance. When you use caffeine on a daily basis for extended periods of time, anything longer than about two weeks, uh, the brain starts to adapt to that situation because it goes, oh, we're being overstimulated. We're out of balance. Let's bring things back into balance. So what does it do? It increases the amount of adenosine floating around in that system, and it increases the amount, the number of adenosine receptors on the brain. What does that do? Well, first of all, it means that you build up a tolerance to caffeine. You require more caffeine to get the same energizing effect. More importantly, when that caffeine leaves your system, you now have increased adenosine signaling. You have more adenosine in there hitting and interacting with more adenosine receptors, triggering this cascade that's lowering your baseline energy levels. And this is the insidious thing about caffeine consumption, is that uh, while most people subjectively feel that caffeine is giving them a boost, over time, and it, this happens quite quickly, just in the span of a couple of weeks, it is actually lowering your baseline levels of energy. It's decreasing the amount of energy that you have at the beginning of the day. And this is why people who are caffeine addicted, who consume multiple cups of caffeine every day, if you've ever watched the way they wake up in the morning, you know, they're typically like zombies where their brain is only half on first thing in the morning and they have the, all they're thinking about is got to get coffee, coffee in my system. <laughs> and only once the coffee gets in their system, do they feel like themselves. If their brain and body really turning on, they can think clearly they have energy. The, the problem is this, this is the insidious part. Subjectively, the, all they feel is coffee, caffeine gives me energy, but they don't see the fact that caffeine, coffee and caffeine are also the thing that wrecked their energy in the first place. Interestingly, you know, people uh, in, in the might have heard in the context of drug addiction about withdrawal symptoms. You know, if you take an alcoholic or a cocaine or crack addict or something like that and you you have them go off the drug, they have withdrawal symptoms. They have all these nasty symptoms, fatigue and headaches and, you know, all kinds of other, you know, depression and, and lack of motivation and all these other nasty effects that may occur from that. Well, what I just described, this is, this is important to understand, and this is actually supported in the scientific literature. The effect that, that I just described, where people wake up as sort of these half-awake zombies, their brain is only half on, they don't have energy, they can't think clearly, those are actual withdrawal symptoms of caffeine addiction and caffeine dependence at, at, the, at the level of the brain. So what's remarkable about, remarkable about this is Chronic caffeine consumers literally experience withdrawal symptoms every day. It happens that quickly. And the, the effects of the caffeine itself are not giving you an actual boost like people perceive them to. They're actually just boosting you back up to what used to be your normal levels of energy and physical and cognitive performance. And this is very well supported in the scientific literature. There is no actual boost that occurs with chronic caffeine consumption. It's what's called in the literature withdrawal reversal, meaning you, chronic caffeine consumption gets you withdrawal symptoms. And then when you consume caffeine, you reverse the withdrawal symptoms and you can function normally again. So you basically have made yourself dependent on a substance 
just to have normal levels of energy and physical and mental function. Yeah, so, so interesting uh, to sum that up. This is a, a side effect of caffeine is low energy. Wow, that's a powerful statement, right? Exactly. That's a side effect. Exactly. I mean, yep. yeah, who, who, who knew? And, and as you mentioned that, you know, people in the morning, they're, they're so sluggish and they, 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 oh, they, they can't, like, don't speak to me till I've had my cup of coffee. I've seen the mugs that have, actually have that on the, uh, imprinted on it. But people, you know, yeah. let's talk about sleep. I read that Americans spend $23 billion a year trying to get a better night's sleep. And that's more hurry than they spend on any other ailment, making sleeplessness the biggest epidemic phase the nation and a lack of sleep causes fatigue it causes obesity even shortened lifespan is there anything you can recommend to help people sleep better i mean i hear it all the time i'm so tired and tired well they reach for the cup of coffee but maybe if they got a good night's sleep they wouldn't crave it oh of course there's so much so much to talk about here where to begin how to give a succinct answer okay so uh first thing to understand is is sleep and energy are two sides of the same coin and they are connected by the circadian rhythm. This is our biological clock. Interestingly, we, we have a central clock, central biological clock in our brain, in a part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And that system, which impacts upon many neurotransmitters and hormones that affect virtually all of the physiological processes in our body. So it's impacting on um, neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin and GABA, it's impacting anorexin, which is a wakefulness and energy neurotransmitter. It's impacting on hormones like thyroid hormone, testosterone, cortisol, melatonin, growth hormone, insulin sensitivity, just to name a few. There's more that tie into the story as well. And all of those things between those neurotransmitters and those hormones, it's affecting virtually everything in our body. So, and, and subjectively, in terms of our quality of life, our energy level, our mood, our sleep quality, it's affecting all of those things. Now, in addition to that, we also have peripheral circadian clocks. This is a newer scientific discovery, but we, it turns out we have essentially biological clocks in all the tissues of our body. And these, these biological clocks exist in our skin, in our liver, in our eyes, in our heart, in our intestines, in our muscle cells, pretty much everywhere. The primary thing that affects those peripheral clocks is nutritional inputs. So light inputs affect the central clock and food inputs affect the peripheral clocks. The goal is if you want that whole system to function well, which affects, you know, again, almost everything in your, your metabolism, you want those two clocks to link up well, to be synchronized. Um, I heard a, a great quote from an English guy recently talking about hormonal rhythms and the circadian rhythm. And I'm going to steal this quote because the expression is so good. He was stealing it from somebody else. So I have no problem stealing it from him. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he said, um, when you have an orchestra and no conduct conductor, you have noise. When you have an orchestra with a conductor, you have music. And this describes all of these different hormones that tie into uh, and metabolic processes that tie into and are regulated by the circadian rhythm. So in order to have all of these hormones making music instead of noise, we need to have a healthy circadian rhythm. How do we do that? We, we optimize both of these clocks. There's ways to optimize them and we synchronize them. So uh, a very, very brief summary of some of the things that are important. Get 
bright light, ideally outdoor sunlight in your eyes within the first half an hour or hour after waking. Um, that's number one, one of the most important things you can do every day for, for optimizing your circadian rhythm and therefore all these different hormones and neurotransmitter systems. Um, block out blue light and ideally green light in the evening, at least an hour or two before bed. Get ample red light in your system. This could come from firelight or this can come from red light therapy or like things like incandescent lights in your home um, in the evening, which increase melatonin levels and create a room with complete darkness. Your bedroom should have complete darkness. And if you can't do that with blackout curtains, then wear an eye mask to create complete darkness. The, the circadian rhythm is shockingly sensitive even to tiny, minuscule amounts of light that you think would be totally insignificant. Um, it's also been shown, just to give you a sense of the magnitude here of, of the effect, that uh, standard indoor room lighting, just being in a normal home that has LED or fluorescent lights, those lights suppress melatonin production, which is a vitally important hormone for sleep, and it's a neuroprotective anti-cancer mitochondrial supporting hormone, that it suppresses levels of melatonin by upwards of 70%, 70. Wow. So just being under standard room, room lighting in a, in a typical home. Think about what, what the consequences might, might be of if you are chronically suppressing by 70% this critically important neuroprotective, mitochondrial protective, anti-cancer hormone. You know, do you, do you think that might increase your risk for cancer or neurodegenerative disease over time? Yes, of course. So, um, you know, that's the central clock. Then these peripheral clocks are, again, primarily responsive to food inputs. And, um, you know, a couple things that we can do there are shorten our daily feeding windows. You don't need anything extreme, anything, you know, sort of resembling uh, what some people call intermittent fasting, though these terms are often vague and nebulous and not well-defined. And some people sort of conflate time-restricted feeding with intermittent fasting, and they, they are distinct to a large extent. Um, but somewhere in the realm of six to 10, eight to 10 hours uh, per day, it appears to be ideal. Um, we have a large body of evidence showing that very long daily fe feeding windows and uh, and also lots of our daily food intake coming in the evening, particularly night eating, are both are very strongly linked with metabolic dysfunction, um, increased levels of inflammation and oxidative stress, decreased insulin sensitivity, um, higher blood pressure, increased weight gain, a number of other effects that are are linked with that sort of eating pattern. So ideally, we want to do the opposite, um, what's called early time-restricted feeding, which basically means condense your food intake into ideally six to 10 hours, but it could also be any, anything less than 12 is good. Uh, over 80% of the population in the United States is eating longer than a 14 hour daily window. So it's basically condensing that by at least three hours, if not more like four or five hours into a shorter daily eating window and, and also shifting more of that daily food intake to the earlier part of the day is linked with improvements in metabolic health and weight loss and energy levels as well. Yeah, I, I have to say everything you you just said put me to sleep. And in this case, it's a good thing. 
mission accomplished. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, that's when you want it to put you to sleep. Hey, talk to us about exercise because I know that's your that's your expertise. I've been looking forward to asking you this question. Some people say they, they get more exercise makes them tired. Some say it gives them energy. Uh, are there certain types of exercise that's better than others? For, for, for getting mm-hmm. energy because I've heard that, you know, I don't want to exercise. I've had a hard day at work. I go exercise. I'm exhausted. Or I've heard the opposite. Hey, I, I get energized from exercising. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's so much. Um, it depends on, you know, does water hydrate you or kill you? You know, so um, what I mean by that is obviously water is critically important for our bodies to function and survive and for our cells to be hydrated. Yet, if you were to drink two gallons of water in the next 15 minutes, you could cause yourself permanent brain damage, put yourself in a coma, or maybe die as a result of that. Um, so anything taken to uh, in too large of amounts uh, can cause harm. There is, um, with exercise, there is, like every other type of hormesis, including all the, the different types I mentioned before, so thermal stress, heat and cold, uh, fasting approaches, um, phytochemicals, uh, red and near infrared light, sunlight, UV light, things like that. They all have what's called a biphasic dose response, which is a U-shaped curve. And what is meant by this is that you need to do enough of those things to create an effect. If you do too little, you don't create any effect. For example, if you want to get the benefits of exercise, you need to do more than walk five steps. If you want to get the benefits of sunlight, you need to do, to do more than get a little bit on your hands or your forearms for two minutes a day, right? You, you need a more mm-hmm. substantial exposure to sunlight. So you need to do enough to get a benefit. But if you do too much, if you, uh, let's say, are used to not getting any sun, you're indoors in Seattle all the time, and then you go to Tahiti and you bake in the sun for eight hours a day right. <laughs> on vacation, um, you you will mostly just create harm. You'll create lots of DNA damage in the skin and, without really getting much of the benefits of sunlight, right? So there is a Goldilocks zone. There is a um, an area where you need to do enough to create the effect, not too much that you're creating harm. And with exercise, that window can be tight. You know, in contrast to some of these other types of hormetic stressors, there's a there's a wider margin for error. With exercise, particularly in the context of somebody who's chronically fatigued or chronically ill, who is not very healthy, the, the, the Goldilocks zone for what dose is the right dose of exercise can, can be a pretty narrow window. And um, you've got to get that right. So you've got to know what your body can handle. And that might vary also from day to day, making this picture even more complex. Maybe you're super stressed out. Maybe you slept poorly the night before. Now your tolerance for exercise is lower than than what it might otherwise be. Your body has less resilience to handle that exercise. So there's a lot of complexity that goes into getting that dosage right. But it is very important to have a sort of baseline of what your body can handle and what is too much. And to also learn the skill, to cultivate the skill of being able to listen to your body can also be helped by measuring your heart rate variability every morning. Um, If you want to have an objective way of gauging this, many elite athletes use that approach to to modulate their training. If they feel well-rested, they have high heart rate variability, they will train hard. And if their body gets overstressed, they start to overtrain, heart rate variability goes down, they get that metric and they say, okay, it's time for a rest day or or a light day of training. Right. So you can modulate it that way from day to day. 
Um, but listening, that skill set of listening to your body and that biofeedback is, is an important aspect of this. Now, um, once you get the baseline, which is highly individual, you know, if you take a, a chronically fatigued person versus an elite athlete, they may have 10 orders of magnitude difference in terms of their capacity to tolerate exercise and what's the appropriate dosage for them. So you have to find what your body can tolerate. It might be walking five minutes or it might be five hours of running in somebody who's an extreme athlete. You know, my body personally, uh, I have a very high level of fitness um, that's been cultivated over many years of training. You know, I can go rock climbing for an hour and a half. I can go surfing for two right. hours. And I can, I can do an hour long weight training workout and a sauna session all on the same day and be, and be fine with that and actually feel great with that. Um, somebody else may not have anywhere close to that capacity. So knowing your thresholds critical. And as far as type of exercise, there's a lot to be said here. And there's sort of many layers to the story that the foundational level is if you're currently not exercising, the, the first and, and most important goal is find any type of exercise that you enjoy and that you will stick with. If you don't enjoy it, you won't stick with it. So find something that you will do consistently that's enjoyable or at least tolerable for you. So you're doing at least some type of exercise consistently, at least three days a week, ideally at least moderately to intense, uh, intensely vigorous exercise. And, um, and then once you've established that baseline and you're sort of looking to optimize then there are benefits of every type of exercise. There isn't a, really a case to say, oh, you know, endurance exercise is better than resistance exercise across the board for every health parameter or high intensity interval training is better than these other types. Um, ideally, we have some mixture of these different types. And if we were, we're going to create sort of an optimal health routine um, for anti-aging and longevity, for fat loss, for metabolic health and energy, uh, it would look something like resistance training three to four times a week, high intensity interval training one to three times a week, and um, endurance exercise at least three times a week. Now, not all of this has to be done in a gym in a sort of a regimented way. For example, I don't do any endurance exercise or high intensity interval training in a gym. I do rock climbing. I do surfing. I hike with my with my dogs. I ride bikes with my son. Um, I play tennis. I'm getting all of my endurance yeah. training and high intensity interval training in the context of fun with my family and, and sports. And then I just do weight training in a gym. So anyway, that's that's a very brief answer to a complex yeah, question. Yeah, and it, what I found, I've discovered in the last three decades at my clinic, is patients over 50 that lift weights are more prone to back and shoulder injuries. I see it every single day. And as you said, if somebody is a professional bodybuilder, maybe that's for them. But to go in the gym at 50 and start bench pressing their body weight, I don't know. Wouldn't they be better off doing cardio or maybe some band exercising? Well, sarcopenia, loss of muscle mass, is... Uh, one of the leading contributors to frailty and, and early death in old age. So uh, I would actually argue that resistance exercise is even more important uh, for older people. And there's, there's lots of literature to back that up, um, that protein consumption and resistance exercise becomes even more important. And this is counterintuitive for some people, but becomes even more yeah. important as we get older to prevent physical frailty. It's, it's which again is a, is a major contributor to, to early death. But to your point, it is extremely important, particularly if you're you're starting to learn resistance exercise at an older age when the body is more frail. 
it's critically important to do things smartly and learn proper technique and progress slowly so you don't injure yourself. You know, it's just, just as it's a bad idea to take somebody who's a sedentary couch potato and then, you know, who's very, very overweight and then say, hey, go start a running program where you jog five miles every day. Right? Yeah, They're just going to beat, beat the hell out of their, their joints. They're going to create a lot of tissue damage. They're going to maybe create stress fractures. Um, you, you know, you can, you can create a lot of problems doing that type of exercise in the wrong way, too. Um, so you have to do things smartly. Yeah. You have to know what you're doing. You have to progress in a good way. You have to learn proper technique. All those things are important. Well, well said. I'll tell you, it's, it's these, the guys going there and they just want to be Rambo. It's like, you know, first day I'm going to start bending and then they can hardly move. Take it slow, slow increments. <laughs> slow, what do they say? Uh, slow and steady wins the race. You're still there and still get exactly. it. It's fantastic. Time flew by my yeah. friend. I want to thank you again for uh, sharing, uh, harnessing your inner energizer, Bonnie, and sharing your little secrets to, uh, be, you know, stop yawning all the time. You know, <laughs> I see so much yawning. You're the anti-yawning expert. That's what I'm going to call you. I love that. Fantastic. <laughs> Hashtag anti-yawning. Let's make that a movement. That's right. That's right. <laughs> totally. That's great stuff. The book is called Eat for Energy, How to Beat Fatigue, Supercharge Your Mitochondria, and Unlock All Day Energy. It's a great read. I highly recommend you get a copy. Go to theenergyblueprint.com. And while there, be sure and sign up for RA's free newsletter so you can stay up to date with all the latest cutting-edge science of overcoming fatigue. Also, check out his Energy Blueprint podcast. He brings together some of the world's leading experts that share their knowledge and how you can optimize your health. You can follow Ari on Facebook at The Energy Blueprint. For my daily Facebook post, I'm at Dr. David Friedman. On Instagram, follow me at Dr. D. Friedman. If you heard Ari share something today that would benefit somebody you know, and you know you've got friends that are yawning, we got to get that movement going, the anti-yawning. I want you to send them a link to this podcast so they can get more zig in their zag. You know, don't be selfish. Share this information on social media with friends. Sharing is caring. Uh, all podcasts are available at To Your Good Health Radio or RadioMD.com and peruse our podcast library. A lot of great segments to learn from and share. This information, as I say, is too important. Don't keep it to yourself. You know, it's like, you know, the good restaurant you want to share with others. This knowledge right here is important for others that you love and know. You can also subscribe to future podcasts at iHeartRadio and iTunes. More to come. Stay tuned and stay well.